Welcome to the Whiskey Rebellion. This is David Silkenet in Edinburgh. Joined as always by Frank Cogliano. How are you doing, Frank? Hello, David. I'm great. Thank you very much. Uh, so this week, uh, this profession lost one of its giants uh, when Gary Nash uh, passed away at the age of 88. He was a, an extraordinarily important scholar uh, and, and public intellectual. And to, today we're going to discuss his, his legacy and to help us make sense of this, we're joined by one of our PhD students, uh, Miles Stanley, who uh, knew Gary and actually uh, co-authored an article with him. So I think we want to sort of, sort of make sense of, of who he was, the impact he had on the historical profession, and the impact he had uh, on, on the country and to reflect upon uh, his, not only his, his work, but, but also who he was as a person. Um, I'm not. I don't think I ever met him, Frank. Did you ever meet him? I didn't meet him either. And, and even though you know he's a major figure in my field, I think because Gary was based at UCLA mm. uh, for almost his entire career, I we just didn't cross paths. Yes. So, but so we're thrilled to have Miles here. Welcome, Miles. Uh, thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> uh, can't wait. Longtime listeners will recognize, maybe if they have a you know encyclopedic memory of the podcast, <laughs> that Miles was, has previously been on the podcast. Uh, we talked about video games at one point. Yeah, video right? games and history. Yeah. So, uh, oh, right, that's right. <laughs> Frank was not on. That I episode. forgot. <laughs> <laughs> Frank doesn't play video games, so he doesn't. Yeah, it wasn't. All right. Uh, so, for those people who aren't familiar with Gary Nash, he uh, received his PhD from Princeton in 1964. Uh, he had previously actually been in the Navy for a couple of years, uh, and then he spent almost his entire teaching career, except for I think the first two years, uh, at UCLA published a whole series of books starting uh, really in the early 1970s, uh, Red, White, and Black, The Urban Crucible, The Unknown American Revolution, thinking about more recent stuff, The Forgotten Fifth, dozens of other uh, important scholarly works. Uh, He also published a a textbook, The American People, which is one of the more widely used uh, textbooks at at the high school level especially. Uh, And he was involved in writing... Uh, the National History Standards, and we want to talk about sort of all of these these elements uh, of his career. Yeah, so there are really two tracks, aren't there, David? We want to talk about Nash as a scholar, mm. and as a scholar, he's certainly one of the most important historians of early and early national America and race and slavery in the United States. I think uh, I think he's on the short list of full stop most important scholars of those of those topics, particularly the intersections between them. Uh, but he also had this other really prominent role, and he would probably be better known to the wider public as a public intellectual, particularly in the what have been become known as the history wars. And Miles has some insights, I think, to offer us with both of those. So why, why don't we take him as a scholar first sure. and then talk about him as a public intellectual? Uh, so when we think about especially about the, the, the books he writes in, in, the, in the 70s, Frank, do you want to sort of give us some context about you know when he writes Red, White, and Black, when he writes The Urban Crucible? Like, what's the scholarly intervention he's making with those kinds of books. He writes a book about, about African-Americans in Philadelphia. He writes a number of other kinds of, of texts then. What, what's that historiographic moment like? Yeah, I mean, I'm the oldest of we three sitting at this table. Mm. So uh, <laughs> although although when I went to graduate school or began graduate school in the late, eight, or late 80s, ending, uh, finishing in the early 90s, uh, the joke was already going around that the new social history wasn't so new anymore. Mm. But Nash was definitely at the cutting edge of what was known uh, as the new social history in the nineteen late from the mid nineteen sixties down to say roughly nineteen eighty. Although I can the discrete dates don't fit very mm. well with this, and it was a movement to tell history as Jesse Lemish, another uh, very famous practitioner of it, uh, from the bottom up. And, and Nash was uh, one of the leaders of this movement and seeking to, in the parlance of the time, to give voice to the voiceless. And so Nash wrote a number of books in that period. Red, White, and Black is a famous kind of overview of, of early American history. And the title kind of tells you what it's about mm. in, in many respects. Uh, so this isn't your founding father's early America. It's, 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 it's early America from the perspective of the people they owned and the pen exploited and the people they displaced and so on. Uh, his most important book, I think, from that period and the one that's of, of most lasting, Im- has had the most lasting impact, I think, as a historian of the American Revolution would be uh, The Urban Crucible, which uh, came out in the, I think... 1979. Right, and was published by Harvard University Press and was an overview. It looked at the cities in the American Revolution, particularly 
Philadelphia, New York, and Boston, uh, and the role of those cities and the role and wealth inequality in those cities and social stratification in the coming of the American Revolution. It's still the work people go to for those questions. I mean, it really has stood the test of time now. Uh, and, and so I think Nash was associated with that social history turn, particularly in early American mm -hmm. history, but it spread to other fields, including your yeah, own. Yeah, no, I think um, the entire profession really shifted. That's right. And, and um, Nash was at the cutting edge of that shifting paradigm. And I'm looking to both of mm -hmm. you as people who went to graduate school a bit later than I did, and, and you know, in terms of um, whether... Is that a fair assessment? I think yeah, I think that that is a, a you know a fair assessment. I think it's a really important moment in the historical profession. I think you know the, the one of the things that I always sort of teach my my students about is sort of how do you understand historiography? The question is sort of what's going on in society at that moment that's going to shape the profession. You know, scholarship is shaped in part by other scholarship, but ninety percent of it's shaped by the world around them. And you know, I think scholars who who are writing about about poverty and class and race like Gary Nash was, were shaped very much by the social upheaval of the 1960s and 1970s, the civil rights movement, the, you know, the, the Vietnam War, and, and, and those ideas were, were, you know, you can read his scholarship through that lens and scholarship of lots of other people where, where there are whole aspects of the American Revolution that, that people previously didn't talk about. You know, if you read scholarship from the 1950s, um, or before that, you don't find mentions of working class people. You don't mind find mentions of African Americans. You don't find discussions of Native Americans. It's about you know George Washington, Thomas Jefferson, the leaders. Those people that you know. So that he they're presenting a sort of radically new vision of of what the American past looks like. Um, the interesting thing, and I, I want to hear Miles's views mm. on this, but but just one uh, quick observation is. You know, Nash got his PhD in 1964 at Princeton. He was born in Philadelphia, mm. uh, so so he stayed relatively close to home. And to a certain extent, despite the fact he was he was based at UCLA for most of his career, much of his, of his research centered on Philadelphia, Philadelphia. Uh, and Pennsylvania. But his first book was actually, if memory serves. Uh, which I assume was his PhD thesis came out in the late '60s, and it was about Quakers and politics. Right. And so, and so, so he he made a turn, if you will. Uh, he would have been a young academic mm. at that point, what we call an early career researcher, I guess. Mm. Um, <laughs> uh, when at, at the at the very moment that all of this took off, and as you say, undoubtedly influenced by um, the, by the pressing social social and political concerns of the day in the, in the late 1960s. But Miles, how did you come to, as somebody who came to, to Gary Nash's work a bit later than we did because by virtue of being younger, so good good for you. Um, <laughs> so uh, did you know Nash's work before you encountered him? Because uh, let's say, so you encountered him as a master's student at UCLA, right? So um, tell us so a little yeah. bit about how, you're, how you met him and then if you could reflect on his scholarship. Sure, absolutely. The, the, my initial uh, introduction to Gary was actually in community college. I was at, at Miracosta Community College in, in San Diego, and someone, uh, one of my professors there, recommended uh, the uh, Unknown American Revolution to me, and that I was absolutely stunned by his scholarship and um, the subjects that he discussed. And it, uh, it, turned, me, it turned me on to, to several of his other, his other books, The Forgotten Fifth, um, as well as... Uh, Friends of Liberty, but uh, no. To be to be completely honest, I mean, I was introduced to Gary substantially earlier than that, as I think a third or a fourth grader, as Gary uh, edited um, this old uh, Houghton Mifflin textbook, uh, America Will Be, mm. um, and I had no idea about this until I interned at the NCHS at UCLA and actually saw that old textbook on the shelf. I recognized the cover immediately, and I was just like, "Wait a second. Looked at the authors. Gary Nash? Okay, I guess I've been reading him for pretty much my entire life. Um, <laughs> weird to say that. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the things that's very interesting about his career is that he was both a very prominent and original academic, and he really took a substantive issue, uh, interest in, in how history was taught in the schools. I mean, obviously he was the head of this, the center at UCLA, and takes time to write textbooks which is not something that the historic profession rewards very much, generally. Um, you know, they, we, you get a lot of rewards for writing original monographs, and he definitely wrote a lot of original monographs throughout his career. You mentioned 
you know, the Unknown American Revolution, which came out in 2005, I think, and Forgotten Faith is 2006. So, I mean, he, he's writing, and he's, you know, his more recent stuff, his, most, his last book came out a couple of years ago, two, three years ago? Um, that, yeah, Warner Mifflin, but he actually uh, uh, released a, a compilation of papers uh, from Warner Mifflin mm. uh, this year, actually. Okay. Uh, so, you know, he's, he's at a publishing academic, uh, you know, throughout his career, but he also has this really passionate interest in trying to communicate to people of all ages. Yeah, I mean, before we, I mean, we, I, I, we need to talk about him as a public intellectual mm. and his engagement with, with, with a wider audience than most historians reach. Mm. But before we do that, I don't think we should lose sight of his, his the academic track, if mm. you will, uh, particularly the Urban Crucible. Then the reason I want to say that, I mentioned that, and his, and the articles he wrote, he published in anticipation of that. There's a huge amount of quantitative data mm. in that book. I mean, that book, I mean, in fact, Harvard University Press brought out an abridged version to cut all the tables. But the tables are really important, not least because you know, the kind of computer technology we take for given, mm. for given wasn't, or take for granted, wasn't available to him when he was doing that and the other new social you got to use punch cards You're and using, a big main, yeah, mainframe, right? Yeah, punch cards and, and legal pads and things like this. So they're doing all this... Um, you know, with, with with tools that were, that were the, the kind of tools we take for granted were unavailable to those those early scholars. Miles, you're nodding in a kind of sage way. Did you ever discuss that with um, you? Or? No, but uh, there there were a few boxes uh, that were kept in the uh, the National Center's offices for, you know, um, that uh, were Gary Nash's old research materials what, that he was working through when he was publishing these books, and that's exactly what they were: stacks of legal pads, um, microfilm, microfiche, uh, you know tables, calculations, mm -hmm. all written by hand with a pencil. Maps all just scribbled yeah. all over. And it well, was... I, you know, that was one of the hallmarks of that social history of, of the 1970s was this, this quantitative turn where you're trying to sort of make sense of, of these large number of people that, you know, you don't have great records for, you don't have written sources by, so you have to sort of reconstruct their lives in, in other ways. And, and there, are lots, there are lots of books that were written in the 1970s that sort of embrace this sort of quantitative turn. Some of those are still worth reading, and I think a lot, you know Gary Nash's would be in the category of some of those that are still worth reading. Some of them you look back on them and say, "Wow, this is really important historiographically," but I'm not quite sure I want to, you know, wade through this this study of, of a small New England town and its tax records again. <laughs> Let um, me put it to you this way: that work, say around 1970, mm. was almost as close in time and certainly in technology to what Charles Beard was doing. Mm -hmm you know, in the economic interpretation of the, of the Constitution of the United States in 1913 than we are to today. Wow. Okay. So, so, so you know, this, this was the dawn of a new age, but they were doing it with technology um, that, without the technology, I should say, sure. that's, that's available to us. So you're right, not all of this has stood the test of time. Done. I mean, in fact, I'd say the two best works from that period that really have stood the test of time and are important mm -hmm. and rereading re by... Scholars today would be the Urban Crucible by Nash and uh, Boyer and Nissenbaum's Salem Possessed, mm. which used a lot of similar techniques as well. To yeah, the, 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 the Minutemen in their world. I think it would yeah. be a similar yeah, category of yeah. looking yeah. at stuff from Robert the uh, from from that from the Revolutionary period. So, what's your favorite Gary Nash book? So, so in terms of <laughs> uh, in terms of if we think about his scholarly output of monographs, which is huge. Or monographs and others, because some of them are collections of essays yeah. and lectures and so on. That's a really hard call, because there's so many good books over a long period of time. Um, you know, I, th I think Red, White, and Black is is, is great. Um, the, the Unknown American Revolution, I think, is also really good. Um, I don't know, Miles, what, what would you got a favorite? So, so I think mine is is uh, friends of uh, friends of liberty, um, where he discusses the relationship between Agrippa Hull, Thaddeus Kosciuszko, and uh, Thomas Jefferson. That was actually a co-authored work uh, with I'm I'm not I'm not sure if I'm going to get this right, but Graham, Gal Russell Hodges, is that um, yes that's Frank. What's yours? Uh, mine is probably Race and Revolution, which is a short book he published in 1990. And it's a series of lectures. So I think mm. it was the Merrill Jensen lectures, which I presume were at Wisconsin. Um, and, and, and it's a really interesting book. It teaches really well, mm. which is one reason I like it. But it, it, one reason I like it is it, it brings together a lot of the things that were concerns of Nash's throughout his career. 
in a really interesting way, and it questions orthodoxy. So the orthodox view is that the framers of the United States Constitution compromised over slavery, and we've talked about these compromises before, um, and undoubtedly will again, uh, basically as the price for union. They recognize, you know, because they needed to ensure that the union got off the ground and they needed the states of the Lower South, in particular Georgia and South Carolina, mm -hmm. that they made compromises over slavery. And that although there was an anti-slavery movement around the revolution, or a moment, I should say, at, 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 during the revolution, during and immediately after the revolution, it passed because this compromise was necessary for the good of the union mm. and the greater whole, even if enslaved people paid the price for that. Nash challenges that very premise in, in Race and Revolution, and the, argu the argument has stayed with me for now 30-plus years and uh, in a really interesting way, and he, he says, look, and he provides some evidence to support this, the Lower South, South Carolina and Georgia, needed the Union more than the Union needed them. They were threatened by the Spanish to their South and West. They were worried about trying to maintain the slave regime within their own borders, and basically, they weren't in a position to make demands mm. and to dictate to the other 11 states. And that Nash says, makes the argument that the Constitutional Convention was a really, was a missed opportunity in the history of anti-slavery in the United States and the history of the United States. I've always found that very compelling. I find it very, it's a really well-written book. It's a really engaging argument. It challenges an orthodoxy that's pretty deeply entrenched. And students like it. So I think that's my okay. favorite book. One of the things that strikes me about his, his scholarship and tries to replace it into a historiographic context and, and thinking about how one might teach it, I kind of see him as sort of the counterpoint to, to Gordon Wood, where they, he has that they have very different visions about what the revolution was and who fought the revolution and what we need to pay attention to. Um, you know, and thinking about when the you know they, their their scholarly careers sort of mirror each other in, in some ways. Yeah, they were roughly the same same age. age yeah. um, you know, in terms of public discourse about what the revolution was about, thinking about the the bicentennial and everything since then, is the revolution something that's that that we need to pay attention to from the top down or something from the bottom up? Is the revolution uh, fundamentally something that should be celebrated or something that should be? Uh, complicated and then analyzed with with all of its warts and all yeah i'd push back slightly I, i'm not i i actually think we're here to talk about gary nash gordon wood is slightly mischaracterized as a celebrationist i don't think he's a oh I, I i was i was character i was yeah i mean I, so, so i actually purpose. think wood is slightly misread in that way mm -hmm. uh but but i i take your point that they they have very very different visions of what the revolution mm -hmm. was about and you know, uh, had Gary Nash lived till 2026 and the 250th anniversary of the revolution, which is which is hoping into view, I'm sure his take on things and his take on mm. how the public should be yeah. marking that event would be very different from Wood. So I agree. I agree with your premise that they are different slightly. Well, I think if you read sort of you know radicalism on the one hand and, and the unknown American Revolution sort of against each other, they they present you know sort of the the. You can sort of see the spectrum of the scholarship about ways to approach the revolution. And I think, you know, thinking about teaching them, those are the kinds of texts you can place alongside one another and so students can see, look, there, there's lots of different ways to, to approach this, this era. That's right. Um, That's right. I agree with that. Let's talk about his... his uh, well, well, actually, you know, sorry, sorry, before we do that, yeah. Miles actually... Wrote did research and published with Gary Nash. So, so, so tell us about how that came about. You, you, you did a, you did scholarship with him. So it seems yeah. to me that we have an expert in the room who ought to have his chance yeah, to yeah, say yeah. something about that. And, and I feel like I've been sitting here nodding uh, in in the corner, uh, nodding along. Um, and uh, we didn't make Miles sit in the corner. No, no. I want to make that clear. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, no, no, no. But that, so, so yes, I did. I, I co-authored an article um, with Gary uh, a, few, a few years back, and um, I, that came about because I had done some work as a research assistant for one of his uh, more recent publications, um, a biography of uh, the Quaker uh, Warner Mifflin, and um, and you know, working with Gary was, I mean, quite literally a dream come true, um, and and. You know, it was, uh, I, I frankly had, by the time I got to UCLA, he had already uh, retired, and I really didn't even plan on meeting him, um, you know, and, and 
it uh, it was just a surprise that I ended up uh, becoming an intern for the NCHS, the National Center for History in the Schools, and subsequently met him through through my work with with them. Um, but but writing, I mean, writing with Gary, it was it was such an amazing experience because I learned how to do social history from the best, and and you know, sitting in the young research library at UCLA. Um, you know, just side to side with Gary going over these microfilm reels of tax records um, that uh, he had ordered from the, you know, Historical Society of Delaware and, uh, you know, trying to track down Warner Mifflin and, um, you know, all of these other uh, uh, Quakers in, in Delaware. Um, it was extraordinary. Him, you know, being able to, to share his knowledge and experience, how to read these, I mean, incredibly daunting, detailed records, you know, that, I mean, most people look at and can't even read the writing, hmm. um, you know, because it's, it's script and, you know, 18th century script at that. Um, but it was, it was, I, I, I can't, uh, I, I can't say how much I, I treasure those memories. And what how, secrets did, what secrets did he give you about how to make sense of those? Cause I mean, one of the things I think I see in his scholarship is he had the ability to make those kind of dull documents speak and Real. sing. Yeah. Uh, so what, what did, did he pass on any of those? Secrets that we can now share, or are those <laughs> you know, trade I secrets wish. you're going to take with you. I, I hope so. I um, the the one thing that he the one thing that he taught me that I think was the most important was um, uh, being able to connect um, the uh, being able to connect the dots and um, and how to do that. And you know, he told me about how, for example, how abolition societies functioned with the various um, with the various acting committees, um, and you know where I think knowing where to look to find those documents is one of the most important things and and uh that he that he taught me how to do um and you know of course like it's it's different than than mining footnotes right when you've got somebody who's sitting next to you and explaining these things to you it's uh um but yeah no being able to bring being able to bring those stories to life i i only hope that i will be as eloquent and and uh and well uh and well written as as he was in that regard what was he like to work with? Honestly, awesome. Um, I mean, you know, we always had uh, lunch and coffee whenever we'd meet at uh, at YRL, and um, you know, he would uh, uh, he actually paid me out of his own pocket, which was incredibly generous um, for you know the couple of hours that I would work every week uh, doing uh, research and mining these microfilm reels um, after he'd set me with a task. Um, and you know, because obviously he was retired from the university at the mm. time, so he didn't have any sort of stipend to pull from um but it, you know it was great he was, he was incredibly fair and and uh i mean i don't uh yeah i i i think i think that i think the fact that he allowed me to to give my opinion and he he and seriously and he i mean he seriously weighed you know my my opinion on several different things as we were co-authoring this article and i think that was what was most surprising to me as a junior scholar um that he didn't just sail over it and say okay here's what we're going to do i've got this all charted out he was like well okay so here are some options we can do this or this what what do you think you know and if i gave him a decent argument as to why we should do one thing versus the other thing um we we did it. I mean, for example, we were choosing several different narratives to 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 use in our in our article. Um, he wanted to go with one. I, w I wanted to go with this other one, and uh, we ended up going with uh, the one that I chose because I gave him, you know, I I think a decent argument as to why we should do that. Um, and you know, it was uh, it was an amazing feeling as as someone who didn't even have a master's degree. I was working towards it at the time hmm. to have such a weighty. <laughs> beloved scholar you know take your take your uh, opinion on things i think that was extraordinary but that's just you know my personal opinion <laughs> no that's great yeah. and so what was it like to go through the publishing process with him i mean did you, how did you organize that work or well so that was difficult because i was five thousand miles away uh he was in la and i was in edinburgh at the time um and so just a lot of emails uh bouncing back and forth um obviously you know communicating everything was done online and it was really um you know, it was my first uh, uh, foray into into publishing, and uh, I learned that I will never publish another article that has images ever again. <laughs> um, because there's there is no bigger pain uh, than than getting the file size and formatting correct on images. Um, but uh, but that was a great learning experience. 
Um, no, no, the, the, the publication process was, was, uh, was actually really nice. Um, you know, I, I handled the technical aspects and, uh, and uh, wrote some of the cover letters, um, which was, again, you know, a great opportunity because, you know, writing, writing these cover letters, again, as a junior scholar, when he obviously could have just done it in a heartbeat, um, was an incredible learning experience. Mm. You may want to reconsider the photos then, because it's it's good to have images. I always find that they're, they're the best part of my articles are the pictures. Um, <laughs> well, certainly when reading academic articles, and you get to a page with a picture, like, oh, all right, I'm a page closer to the end. <laughs> exactly. Did he give you any writing tips? Writing tips? Um, you know, I mean... His writing is, is, is very clear and, and it's very accessible, and I don't, I, I'm always impressed when, when academics can write in a, in a way that, that you can give to somebody who's not an academic and they can actually read it, so... Yeah, I mean, Gary was short and succinct and, and you know, no, 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 no BS, right? You know, just right to the point. And um, I think that is something that I struggle with. Obviously, you're hearing me speak. My writing is not a lot different. Um, it's, you know, I just kind of wander through uh, time and space. But um, it's, uh, it, it, no, I think, I think that's something that I do try to channel, real, really, um, you know, um, is, is short, succinct, direct, to the point, clear, um, and that is, that is just something that he mastered over, over time, 15, mm. you know, plus years of, of being an academic researcher. Mm. And, and in writing for the public. I mean, I writing for the public, that, exactly. That's, uh, yeah, you gotta, you gotta write yeah, in a very different way. That's right. Uh, so maybe it's time to, to, to turn to that aspect of the discussion in terms of looking at, at Nash's uh, legacy as a public intellectual. Sure. I mean, I think there's, you know, he was a public intellectual pretty much for his, his whole career, but there's a moment in the early 90s where I think it's probably the most Preston. He was the, the head of the, the director of the National Center for History in Schools, which, which Miles mentioned earlier. He was the head of the OAH, the Organization of American Historians, uh, in, in 94 and 95. And he was the co-chair of the committee that uh, wrote the National History Standards for U.S. and World History uh, between 92 and 94, which is a uh, one of the more interesting sort of moments, not only in, in his life, but in sort of our public debates about, about the role of history in American society. Um, this, to some extent, the uh, this summer of critical race theory is a replay right. of debates that Americans have been having in the cultural wars for at least 30 years, years arguably right. longer. But, but, and, and so I don't know whether you ever talked to, to Nash about that, uh, Miles, but certainly I, I think that I think. Well, he wrote a book about it. Yeah, he would have recognized. Yeah, he would have recognized what's happening this summer. summer don't be sure. <laughs> I was struck by by how much of the debate this summer has been very similar to that that moment. So, sort of the background to this, and film, film guys, fill in where I'm 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 missing things. There uh, was a push to create national history standards that came from a variety of of, of governors, state legislatures, and from Congress. There was this. Committee put together, got funding from uh, the NEH and from the Department of Education, like a lot of money. Um, and then they put together these standards, uh, which were then subsequently attacked by mostly people on the right. Uh, Lynn Cheney was very critical of them. They said, she said there was uh, too much Harriet Tubman, not enough Robert E. Lee. Um, Rush Limbaugh spent several weeks of his show trashing these standards, and the Senate actually voted 99 to 1 against endorsing them. Um, and so as a consequence, there are no national history standards really in the United States that are, uh, at least that are approved by the, by the government. Um, so did, did Nash ever sort of like, you know, look back at that moment in, in, in your conversations with him about, you know, was that a moment he was proud of? Was that something he was... Still troubled by because I know we continued to work with schools and continued to sort of write for for those kinds of audiences you know, for the rest of his life. Yeah, so so that was I mean that was my first introduction you know uh, to to the to you know the and working for the um, National Center for History in the schools at UCLA um, you know and and my first introduction to the standards um, I mean unbeknownst to me I I had been reading his textbooks mm. you know for a long time um, even as a, even as a kid but. Um, but you know, to be honest, I I I've I always wanted to ask him about his feelings on that, and um, that was the that was actually in the, the a question related to that was in the last email that I sent him that he never got back to, hmm. um, and uh, and so I guess I'll never really know. What was it like to work in that center with him? 
Um, so, I mean, he wasn't there that often. He stopped in occasionally to say hello. Uh, it was mostly um, uh, other other intern students and uh, uh, other um, there were Marion Olivas, uh, his his longtime uh, friend and and. Uh, secretary and director of the program. Um, but we, we mostly just sold uh, uh, textbooks and learning units. Uh, we distributed them to individual teachers um, and schools. Um, and interestingly enough, fielded some very angry telephone calls from uh, certain people in certain states uh, asking why certain things were not included mm. in these textbooks. And, uh, you know, it was it was very interesting. A lot of telephone calls regarding creationism and uh, various other ideologies. Well, I mean, I think that the, his work uh, sort of reflect in, in in with with the history standards and with textbooks and with with the center were all sort of connected. I think fundamentally to his academics, mm. his scholarship. Right? You know, what he wanted was a history of the American people. Right. Which including. is the title of his textbook uh, that, that, that reflected sort of the breadth of the American experience, including people who were enslaved, people who were oppressed because of their race or class or gender. You know, and so he, he was trying to sort of create a, a complicated story full of a, a wide cast of characters that wasn't necessarily the cast of characters that you know, Lynn Cheney or, or Rush Limbaugh thought were, were the, the appropriate canon of people. Um, right. You know, and and this all connects, I think, in some ways with the conversations we've had about, you know, Trump's, you know, uh, he wanted to create that sort of garden statuary of American heroes. And, you know, that there's a vision of, of who is it that we need? What is it history is for in schools? Who should we celebrate? Who, sh who is worthy of, of admiration? And, and, you know, what names do students need to know? Uh, you know, and the national history standards, uh, which... You know, they got lots of input on. You know, they they, oh, they, they got lots of, of, of from the OAH and the AHA and all these people. You know, various teaching groups to, to, to really create a robust, intellectually uh, up to date with historiography vision of of how to teach about what American history is like and what world history is like. Um, but it's not one that, that I think a lot of Americans were quite ready for in, in the early 1990s. I, I want to ask a provocative question, which might not be appropriate in this podcast. Oh, good. Our theme. <laughs> <laughs> but does the United States need national history standards? It, and, and the reason for this is, so I, I actually think Nash's role as a public intellectual is absolutely necessary. Mm. And, that, and that, that, that activity, I am in no way criticizing mm. but i'm talking about national history standards in particular and and so let me let me and the reason i'm pushing back is or sorry let me, let me explain the logic of this first of all of course as we know the united states has a federal system mm. and education is one of the things where there's a great deal of local autonomy and local control yeah um and the you know the joke about texas history being taught is excessive amounts of texas history in texas and you don't need that in massachusetts well that's true but Texas does have a history that does need to be taught to Texans, you know, in Texan schools. Right? And, and so, yeah. so, you know, we, there's a debate in this country that is both in Scotland and in uh, other parts of the United Kingdom about, about the national curriculum, for example, particularly where history is concerned. But, but when you think about a country as large as the United States, particularly in a federal system with decentralized mm. education, you know, is our national history standards possible? And necessary. So I mean, it, it's it's funny that you that you say that. I mean, I fortunately, you know, didn't I didn't have to wait until I was in college before I learned about Frederick Douglass or Harriet Tubman. Um, you know, but then again, I was part of the Southern California, you know, relatively liberal school system that taught a lot of things. Uh, and uh, but I mean, I, I shudder to think that there are millions of Americans who are growing up and, you know, are not learning about these, you know, McCarthyism was a big part of the uh, the national standards. Mm. Um, you know, the works of, of Douglas and, and Tubman were also important aspects, you know, and yeah, there was pushback that, you know, oh, we're not talking about Thomas Jefferson enough, or we're not talking about Washington enough. It's like, but you can't really talk about American history without talking about those people. However, it's becoming more and more clear on a daily basis that you can you know, mm. excommunicate uh, uh, the uh, 
the non-white voices. Yeah, but I want to make clear, I have no, I object to nothing in those standards. Right. I think the sta- So in terms of the content of those standards, that's pretty much a history curriculum I can get behind. Right. I'm just wondering whether you whether having a the, having a national yeah. history standards is is the right way to go. Well, so I, think there's, go ahead, I, think there's, I think there's two issues. One is is about do we need a national set of standards? And second is who gets to write the standards? And I think the, the problem, and I say this having taught in, in a couple of states in the United States and also taught people how to become high school teachers um, for a while, you know, the state standards vary dramatically. And the quality of the state standards vary dramatically. And part of their quality variance has to do with, with who they have write those state standards. And, and if you have politicians writing state standards and you have people who are on boards of education writing state standards, many of whom have no, which is, you know, an elected position, you would think of people on boards of education would have some education experience or knowledge about what they're writing. That's not necessarily the case, right? Like the, for a long time, the Texas uh, head of the state board of education was a dentist and had very particular visions about what the American history was about. Was that based on his reading of scholarship? No. Was it based on his understanding of the primary sources? No. It was based on his you know, faith tradition based on other things, right? And so he thought of the United States as a Christian country based, you know, that, that, you know the Constitution was based on the Bible. Constitution is not based on the Bible. But like that became part of what was taught in Texas schools. And I think that's a problem, right? Because what students end up with is not... I mean, what you teach in a classroom, especially in the... the, the elementary and middle school and high school level like it, it's teaching history is inherently political wherever you do it but especially when you're dealing with impressionistic people who, who you know uh, are going to see what their teacher says as being true and sometimes not read as critically as maybe uh, older people will um, you know if you control the past you do in some ways control the present in a very sort of you know Orwellian 1984 kind of moment um, and so I think the question is, you know, is in part about national standards, state standards, but, but who is controlling what those kinds of standards are. One of the things that made the work that Gary Nash and others did in the early 1990s important was that these were standards that were based upon the best pedagogical knowledge of, of, of high school teachers about how to teach history and the best academic knowledge about what scholarship looked like and the ways in which historians in that moment understood the American past. Um, so, so, why, so, 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 no, I take so, point, so, but why yeah. not then send those standards to the boards of education in all 50 states and call them state history standards? Enders. And let them debate them because in the federal, so even if, even if if the Senate had voted ninety nine to one in favor mm. instead of ninety nine to one against, you can imagine that the this dentist in Texas would have said, "Well, that's all well and good, but we're going to ignore it anyway." Well, um, you know, the the interesting thing thinking about that is, you know, one of the things that did come around uh, uh, slightly later, but but in the same sort of moment is. You know, no child left behind, which did establish national standards for math and reading, right? And you might say, well, do you need separate math reading, or math and reading standards for Texas and Massachusetts? I have no idea. Probably not for math. One would hope. Um, well, there's no R in the alphabet in Massachusetts. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> Kids, you learn all twenty-five. There's no R. <laughs> that would. Be... Oh, sorry, Dave. Anyway, yes. Um, <laughs> But, 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 you know, there are subjects in which there are national standards and that had a fairly dramatic impact on the ways in which not only those subjects were taught, but in some ways actually the ways in which history was taught because of the ways in which priority was given to those subjects because there were national standards for them. The amount of teaching time that's been given to social studies over the past 20 years has dropped dramatically, especially uh, in the elementary grades, because of, of No Child Left Behind because those are subjects that have standards and tests and teachers and schools and states will be evaluated on them. Uh, and so, you know, as a consequence of not getting that much history in elementary school, when they get to high school, 
you, you know, you, you used to think when you got them in high school as a teacher, oh, they've already learned a bit of this in sixth grade and fourth grade and whatnot. They know where Massachusetts is on the map. They may not know where Massachusetts is on the map by the time they get to high school because they didn't have as much social studies curriculum before that. So I think there actually are consequences in terms of, of how much um, history knowledge that students have. And I think one of the things that we're seeing in 2021 uh, is the consequence of 25 years of of a real massive decline in, in, in history education happening in the United States. Um, to the extent that the history major at universities is now under siege. Well, that's under siege, but also I'm thinking on a much broader level, how do we make sense of January 6th and how do we make sense of a, a, a large section of the United States which has a very interesting vision of what the American past and therefore the American present that is shaping the ways they're shaping their reality. Um, so okay, but uh, I guess my question is, uh, and uh, you've done a, you've both done a good job of answering this, and I, I, I to some extent I, I ask it to provoke, but it, it, had those I was expecting a much more provocative question than this one. Had <laughs> those standards been adopted? Yes. Do you think we're not in the moment we are we're in at the current moment? Oh, counterfactual questions. Counterfactual questions are fun because you can do whatever the hell you want with them. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think it, one of you know the the things that the, the standards had what was really understanding, uh, you know who who has won and who has lost in the American experience and, and trying to sort of really take. You know the experience uh, of African Americans seriously, and put them at, if not quite the center. If you actually read the standards, they're not as progressive as as maybe I would have wanted. Looking back at them, um, but you know the experience of African Americans, the experience of Native Americans, uh, of immigrants, uh, of the poor. I think we'd be in a potentially be in a very different place when we're thinking about the evictions that are happening across the United States right now, if we're thinking about Black Lives Matter and trying to sort of, why does Black Lives Matter seem to half of Americans like the obvious mantra for the moment and half of Americans see it as a terrorist movement? Like, how do we reconcile that? I think, uh, you know, education at the root could do something to, to create a... a, a more cohesive national discourse about the problems that, that the United States is facing right now. Yeah. Else, what do you think? I mean, uh, I, I mean, I agree 100%. I think that, um, you know, the standards simply asked for a little bit of recognition and inclusion, and um, we're still shot down 99 to 1. Um, and, uh, I mean, I think that says a lot, you know, that we're just not, that we as, a, as, a, as, a, as Americans are... Mm. are just holding on to that unwillingness to even recognize or acknowledge, um, you know, things that have happened uh, in our in our past because it's it's difficult and you know, understandably uh, understandably so. And this and I think we are I think we are in a a, a current moment where I mean this is the natural progression. I mean the, mm -hmm. the, the advent of of Black Lives Matter and and the perceptions of of organizations like that and. And uh, I do, I do believe that if there were greater opportunities for education, and uh, if education was a little more aware and inclusive, particularly history education, um, then yeah, I think there is a potential that we would be in a in a very different area. I, I, I can't say. And trying to sort of make sense of this ninety-nine to one vote, I think there, there's there's two fundamental visions about what history education is for. You know, one is is to teach a. a critical understanding of the past and certain kind of methodologies about reading sources and to think critically about how the past informs the present, um, much in the way, same way that, that, that sort of academic history does in, in different degrees. The other vision of what history education is for is history education is there to create a, a sense of patriotism and love of country, right? And those are fundamentally at, at odds with one another. I want to push back on that a little because I don't think it's. I think there's a third way too. Okay. I think there's a third alternative that's quite important, especially in a nation where there's a significant immigrant population. Mm. It's civics education as well, which isn't necessarily flag waving and engendering patriotism so much as explaining 
the stake everybody's got in the, in in the in civil society and mm. and the fundamentals of how it operates because oh, that's, that's history is very rarely taught discreetly. It's often part of social studies. Mm. In, so so I, so I think civics education is a crucial part of it, which is not. You know, the binary you presented, mm. David, was just sort of, well, this is good, and by implication, the other one is bad. I do think there, there, there is a third alternative that, that is important. To be sure, but I think that third alternative, you know, in terms of, of, of civic education, you can do that in a variety of different ways, you know, and, and, and um, there, there's a kind of civic education that, that's designed to help you be a... a a, a critical citizen citizen of the, the society you're in to, to, to potentially challenge these sort of structures and, and, and powers that, that be. And there's a kind of, uh, of, of civic education that, that is, is intending to, to reinforce those power structures. Yeah, I just don't think it's a zero sum game oh, the be way sure. you're presenting it. Well, That's, okay, but, yes. but uh, actually, let's actually. I want to turn back to Miles because I mean this is a very, very oh. interesting discussion, and I started it, and so I apologize for slightly <laughs> hijacking things. I think I think Gary Nash would have liked this discussion. Absolutely, <laughs> but, oh man. Uh, let's turn this back and say, and I want to make it clear, I'm not against with those standards. I want to mm. you know, be clear about that. They're still worth reading. Yeah. What was, and because they're now a historic document themselves, and when you read them against the current moment, it's quite, I don't think it would be 99 to 1 today, actually. I mean, I think that's interesting in terms of the way things have changed. I think that the vote would be a lot closer. I still think we'll probably lose, but I I think it would be closer. Yeah, I think it would. What was he like? To the extent, you know, as a person, you got to know him as a person. Right. We, know, never, we never one met of the him. Most, yeah, by, David and I never met him, but yeah, this is one of the most uh, formidable and important historians of the last century, certainly the second half of the 20th century, uh, historians of the United States. You got to know him as a friend, is that fair to say? I, I mean, I hope so. I, yeah. I think so. so. So, I mean, do you want to offer any reflections that you feel willing to share and able yeah. to share about I, him? Well, he, he loved his dogs. Uh, right. You know, uh, he loved his dogs. and uh, Always uh, a good sign. He, he, he was very, very active. Uh, you know, that was that was extraordinary. Even, you know, I mean, he seemed so much younger than, than he was, and I always forgot that he was in his 80s, you know, when I met him. and I mean, because he was going to jazz festivals and hiking and all this fun stuff. Uh, taking river cruises and such. Um, I mean, no. To be to be honest, I I think the thing that probably impressed me most was his willingness to listen and respond. Um, mm. And I think that was, I mean, it almost came across at times like he was a little bit quiet, but he was just, I think, willing to listen and 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 think about the things that you had said and and respond to them. And I I think that that's a sign of a thoughtful and and patient and and understanding person and something that I hope to emulate. Um, you know, although. Uh, you know, we'll just have to see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> he obviously didn't have a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I've, I heard similar kinds of things from from all the people who you know were commenting on, uh, after the news mm-hmm. of his of his passing online. People who said, you know, whether they met him once or, or knew him quite well, they always said he was kind and generous, and and uh, you know, I didn't hear didn't hear a bad word in, in the whole uh, whole thing. No, and there are a lot of big name academics, and now is not the time to name them, mm. <laughs> about whom that couldn't be said necessarily, mm. or wouldn't be. There are a lot about whom we can say it, but I, I think uh, that's a, a alongside his formidable intellect, his commitment to the craft of history, his commitment to mm. communicating history to a wider public. These are all very admirable, but the, the kind of fundamental decency that you're speaking about, Miles, and that... that Lots of people spoke about the people who knew and loved him. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a rare thing, and that combination of all three of those things is exactly. rare still. I think that comes through in his books too. Yeah, I think that. Yeah. Most definitely. Right. I guess it's time for last drops. Let's well raise our glasses metaphorically or in the memory yes. of, of Gary Nash. So, so um, I've, I've got a, I've got two things to mention, David. Great. If that's okay. Oh, no, that's sure. One is really a continuation of last week's. It wasn't really a last drop. It was the coda I brought up at the end of my last drop about what baseball team our listener, Joe in London, should support. I have have an update for our listeners on this question. Joe has been in touch with me, and he has reported that he has selected the Los Angeles Angels. A a very good choice. Um, A good choice for all the reasons we we indicated before. With a mild sympathy, and because he, he, of course, there are two leagues, so he could choose it with a kind of, he'll take an interest in the New York Mets in the National League. However, and so congratulations, Joe, and thank you for uh, visit Disneyland. Thank well, you for listening. Four after again. <laughs> uh, however, 
friend of the pod, friend of ours, excellent historian, Lindsay Chervinsky, got in touch. Um, Lindsay, who we've had on the pod, uh, uh, was in touch. And, and indeed, it was an ad hominem attack on me and my judgment uh, on Twitter in response to this piece, uh, that, that discussion last week. And Lindsay wanted to make the case. So I, I want to, we should have had her on, in fact, to make this case herself. But uh, <laughs> I, will, I will relay this to, to, to our listeners. Lindsay wanted, uh, felt that we had not considered um, the San Francisco Giants as an option for Joe and that we should have done so. Uh, and and I think actually I really like the San Francisco Giants. I, I and I like San Francisco as as a place to visit. Mm. And I I think you know their their ballpark's great. Uh, it's quite a likable team. Yes. Uh, they're performing really well this season against expectations. So Lindsay, uh, Joe, if you're listening, Lindsay Chervinsky wants you to consider the San Francisco Giants before you consider before you make a, a final decision. I suspect it's too late. You've made your decision, but I just want I want to throw that out there. It's so, not like it's a decision that like <laughs> once you've made it, you can't reconsider it. Actually, it, 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 oh, David, you're a deeply disturbed I mean, person. You can't change these loyalties. All right, this is a discussion for another time. However, my second... Two weeks in, you can change the loyalties. It's not like signing up for the army or something. You've made a commitment and you're done. Okay, all right. And my, my, my second last drop, which of course is a redundancy, um, is I want to congratulate Karen Wolf. Uh, Karen, uh, Karen has been the director of the Omohundro Institute in Early American History and Culture at... Uh, um, in, in Williamsburg for the past several years, but she's just been appointed as the incoming director of the, of the John Carter Brown Library at Brown University. And that's a great thing for her, but it's a, more importantly, it's a great thing for uh, scholars of the mm-hmm. Americas because Karen's a great person. Yeah, and, she's amazing. Yeah, and so that's really good news. So I just want to pass that on. What's your last drop, David? All right, so gentlemen, if, you were to, if I were to say Music Festival, New York State, 1969, what would you think? Woodstock. You would think yeah. Woodstock, right? Well, there was another music festival, and that was the Harlem Cultural Festival, which was also that summer. Um, and there's a new documentary about the Harlem Cultural Festival that was directed by Questlove, the the drummer uh, and DJ for The Roots and and, and uh, from Late Night Television. Uh, and it's about so they've got some really extraordinary footage that's basically been sitting in an attic for uh, half a century uh, of this music festival that lasted. Uh, for a series of weekends uh, in Harlem. It's got Stevie Wonder, it's got Nina Simone, it's got B.B. King, a bunch of other really extraordinarily talented artists. The music in the documentary is amazing. The clothes are also amazing. There's some really good historical context. You know, the Black Panthers were there providing security. Um, and, and, and it's just a really sort of well-made and interesting documentary. And something. What's different. it called? It's <laughs> called Summer... <laughs> I was getting to okay, that. Okay, sorry. I thought you were winding up without telling him the title. It's called Summer of Soul. Right. So it's a, 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 but I highly recommend that. I think it's available on a variety of platforms. I think it's even available in some movie theaters for people who feel comfortable braving a movie theater. Excellent. To Gary Nash. Yes, to Gary Nash. Cheers, gentlemen. Thanks, Miles. Thank, Thank you. you. The Whiskey Rebellion is hosted by David Silkenet and Frank Cogliano. David is a senior lecturer in American history at the University of Edinburgh, and Frank is professor of American history and Dean International for North America at the University of Edinburgh. The Whiskey Rebellion is available on iTunes, Stitcher, and Podbean. You can follow the show on Twitter at WhiskeyRebelPod, and like the show on Facebook for updates about current and future episodes. 